This episode of Crosscut Talks is supported by Alaska Airlines. Hey, welcome to Crosscut Talks. I'm Mark Baumgarten, the managing editor at Crosscut, and this week we're talking about hope. Of course, we're not only talking about hope, we're also talking about challenges, the kind that require a little bit of hope to be met. And we're talking about despair, too. That other feeling that really is the thing that gives hope meaning. But hope is central here. And our guest, Dr. Jane Goodall, is somebody who inspires hope. At least, hope is what I felt when I was told that she was going to be a guest at this year's Crosscut Festival. I just kept thinking about that video of her and the rescued chimpanzee where They release the chimp into the forest, and then it comes back and gives her a big hug. If you haven't seen it, you should look it up and prepare yourself to have some feelings. So this year's festival brought together some incredibly smart, driven, and powerful people to give insight into this moment that we're living through right now, and also some of the history that helped create this moment and the futures that could be. And over the coming weeks, we're going to be sharing some of the most compelling conversations from the festival, which took place at the beginning of May. I'm starting with Dr. Goodall because I think it's important to begin from a place of hope, to hear her vision of what the world could become, and also her thoughts on where we've gone wrong. Joining Dr. Goodall is Dr. Catherine Wilkinson, the author of All We Can Save, Truth, Courage, and Solutions for the Climate Crisis. This conversation and all other conversations on the keynote track of the 2021 Crosscut Festival is sponsored by BECU, which would like to share the following message. BECU believes every forward thinker deserves added momentum. So for over 85 years, they have offered financial services and support to the community. Members have access to local financial centers, over 30,000 ATMs through the co-op network, and online resources. BECU, a member-owned credit union that puts people over profit. Learn more at BECU.org, federally insured by NCUA. So I hope you enjoy the conversation. If you have any feedback, send it to talks at crosscut.com. Okay, on with the show. said early in your time in Gombe that being alone was a way of life in the forest. And I'm curious what this last year has been like for you. Well, this last year, my goodness, a year of lockdown. It was very lucky that I happened to be here in our family home when the lockdown happened. I was very nearly captured and locked down in Abu Dhabi, but I'm very glad to be here. So I've been with my sister and her family, her daughter and two grandsons. And at first I was very frustrated and angry that I couldn't go on traveling and spreading the word. But then I thought, well, that's useless. So with my Jane Goodall Institute team, we created Virtual Jane. And although sitting here day after day after day with no holiday, no respite, doing Zooms and Skypes and podcasts and webinars and 
video messaging and all, all the rest of it has not been exactly fun. The silver lining <laughs> is I've reached millions more people in many more countries than I possibly could have when I was doing my 300 days a year traveling around the world. So, you know, it's, it, it's, it's not what I would choose, but it has had advantages. And it looks like you may be having some bluster outside your, your window today. What's it doing out there in the world? Yes, out there we have a gale, but we also have sunshine. So the light is kind of changing as the wind blows the trees, the sun's behind the trees. So, you know, and at any moment, it may become very dark when the sun drops down, but I can't do anything about that. <laughs> I think it's a it's a nice reminder in this virtual world that we are nestled in our ecosystems um, wherever wherever we are. Well, yeah, I'm very Jane, you've been doing. Yes, please go ahead. I was going to say I'm very lucky that I was um, grounded, as I call it, here because outside we have a lovely garden that I grew up in, the trees I climbed as a child. We're by the ocean, so walking with the dog each day. Um, you know, I've been, I've been very, very lucky, really. The dogs the dogs have had it the best, perhaps, <laughs> this, this last well, year. Well, he's the kind of dog. I mean, I love him because he's an animal, but he was a very ancient whippet who never liked walking even when he was young. And um, it's boring to take for a walk. First of all, people look at you and say, why are you dragging this poor old dog? As soon as you turn home, I have to run to keep up with him. I mean, he is really bizarre. <laughs> he sounds like a character. Well, Jane, you have been doing this work since 1960, and you've seen a lot of change during these last decades. And right now, our planetary crisis between biodiversity loss and the climate emergency feels more dire and more urgent than ever. But it also seems like more and more people are aware that we have to be better stewards of our home, this earth that we share. And more and more people seem to be stepping off the sidelines. And I'm curious, what do you see happening, Jane, in this moment? Well, first of all, I think that this pandemic has caused a huge lot of suffering. It's brought out the best and the worst in people around the world. But people have begun to understand we brought this on ourselves by our absolute disrespect of animals, invading their, their habitats, forcing them into closer contact with each other and humans capturing them, trafficking them or their body parts around the world, selling them in wildlife markets for food or for medicine or for clothing or for pets. And all in these conditions, as well as our factory farms, which are described as concentration camps for animals, we are providing environments which make it relatively easy for a pathogen like this virus to jump from a, an animal to a human when it may actually bond with the cell in the human body and as it has in this case, create um, a new disease. In fact, 75% of all new emerging diseases in humans have a zoonotic origin. So mm. the same disrespect of the environment, 
has led to climate change and loss of biodiversity. And so all of these three coming together, I do think that more people are aware that we it, it, it's up to us to change the way that we actually think about our relationship with the natural world and try and get yeah. together to to create a new, more sustainable economy. And I've heard you, Jane, speak of animals as non-human beings. Why, why do you use that term? Why do you refer to them that way? Well, the thing is that when I went out to study chimpanzees in 1960, nobody had any faintest idea of how they behaved in the wild. And I didn't have a degree, but Lewis Leakey, I don't know, he, he saw something in me, I suppose, and he gave me this opportunity and we got money for six months. And fortunately, although at first the chimps ran away from me as soon as they saw me, you know, they'd never seen a white ape before and we are white apes. But then one of them began to lose his fear. Dear David Greybeard, he's uh, behind me um, up here. and. Mm -hmm. I saw him using and making tools, grass stems, leafy twigs to fish for termites. And at that time, it was thought that humans and only humans used and made tools. That changed everything. Then National Geographic came in. They provided money for me to carry on with the research. They sent a documentary filmmaker, Hugo Van Lauwek. But after one and a half years, I think it was, Leakey told me that I had to get a degree that he wouldn't always be around to get money for me. And he got me a place to study ethology. I didn't even know what it meant. I hadn't been to college, but now I'm to get a PhD in ethology in Cambridge University, which is a top science university in the UK. And I was really nervous. And imagine how I felt when I got there and these professors of whom I was really nervous told me I'd done everything wrong. Giving the chimps names was not scientific. I should have numbered them. I couldn't talk about them having personality, mind or emotion because those were unique to us. But I had learned from a wonderful teacher in my childhood. And uh, that's the other way. Here he is, Rusty, my dog. <laughs> you can't share your life in a meaningful way with any animal or, you know, and not realize that we're not the only beings personality, mind and emotion. We're part of and not separated from the rest of the animal kingdom. And so Absolutely. I talk about the chimpanzees, well, non-human beings, I talk about them as beings, as humans, as chimpanzees, mm -hmm. as dogs, as elephants, as dolphins. And we all matter in this amazing diversity of life on this planet. Mm -hmm. And I'm, I'm curious, you went to Cambridge and you became sort of indoctrinated in, in the ways of science, but you have managed to keep and nurture this open, curious, wondering mind. And I'm, I'm curious how you've done that over, over the years, Jane. Well, first of all, I did not become indoctrinated right from the beginning. I suppose <laughs> I was a rebel. I, did, I, would, I wouldn't let them indoctrinate me. And uh, when they told me the difference between us and all other animals was one of kind, I just knew it wasn't true. So mm. I kept that 
relationship with animals on that level that we mm -hmm. are one of many species but there's a lot of talk these days about invasive species that come in because they come on ships or we brought them as pets and let them go and how they're damaging our local flora and fauna but and they're treated in most cruel ways and very often but the most invasive species ever is us we've invaded every ecosystem and because we have this crazy idea that there can be unlimited economic development on a planet with finite natural resources we're destroying the world and yet the biggest difference between us chimpanzees and other animals is yes they're way 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 more intelligent than science used to admit but there's a difference i mean you know no animal living could design a rocket that goes up to mars with a little robot that can take photographs no animal living other than the human animal could create a network which enables you in america and me in the uk to speak to each other and you know there are some webinars where there's people from all over the world speaking to each other so isn't it bizarre that this most mm. intellectual any species ever is destroying its only world it's it's as though we've lost wisdom you know we don't make decisions based on how will this affect future generations but how will this affect me now me and my family now the next shareholder meeting all of these things we've lost wisdom it does it does feel like we have lost the basic wisdom of of life that we are just so out of step with in dominant society and as you say this very strange belief in the idea of infinity <laughs> that undergirds our entire economic system um, and has caused so much destruction and and that actually leads leads into the question i wanted to ask you next which is of course makes sense. The world thinks about you as inextricably linked with chimpanzees and the work that you've done to raise our responsibility to respect and protect them. But your work has come to expand really to all species and to a global scale. And I'm curious, how did your focus ripple out from one species to ecosystems and the humans that share them? Well, first of all, it didn't begin with chimpanzees. It began with a mm. childhood of, of all animals. But right here, mm. where I'm speaking to you from, I was out in the garden. There was no television when I was growing up. I mean, there was none of this technology. So it was nature and books. And behind me mm. are some of the books that I read as a child, Dr. Doolittle and Tarzan, which gave me this mm. passion to go and live with wild animals and write books about them. And so it was Dr. Leakey who suggested chimpanzees. I would have studied any animal after I got out mm. to Africa and met him, mm. but he chose me to study the one most like us, which was kind mm. of amazing. Because it was because the chimps are so like us biologically as well as behaviorally that I was able to finally convince science that we're part of the animal kingdom and not separate from it. And so yeah. 
how, how did this all evolve? I was out in the forest with the chimpanzees, got my PhD in spite of the scientists. Um, and then, <laughs> <laughs> yes, and went back to Bombay, built up a research uh, team, and then went to a conference, which was really about how do chimps behave in different environments, state behavior, different behavior. But we had a session on conservation and it was shocking, absolutely shocking. Like everywhere across Africa, chimpanzee numbers were dropping, forests were disappearing, chimpanzees were being sold in the markets for, for meat. And I left that conference as, a, as an activist. It just happened. I did not make the decision. And then going back, and learning about what was happening to the chimps, but also learning about what was happening to the poor people living in and around chimp habitat. They had no good health or education facilities. The land was overused and infertile. They were struggling to survive. And it came to a head when I flew over the tiny Gombe National Park, which had been mm -hmm. part of the great equatorial forest belt when I began in 1960. By 19, the end of the 1980s, it was this little patch of isolated forests surrounded by bare hills. And this is when it hit me. There are more people living here than the land can support. They're too poor to buy food elsewhere. They're destroying their environment and their desperation to grow food to feed their families. And if we don't help them find ways of making a living without destroying the environment, then we can't save chimpanzees, forests, or anything else. So that led to our program to improve their lives so that now they become our partners in seven different African countries. And because all of that costs money, then uh, what's the point of doing it if you're not raising new generations to be better stewards than we've been? So that led to our yeah. Roots and Shoots program, which is mm. helping young people to choose projects to make the world a better place. So mm. it, it, it all moved outwards like that in a very logical way when you think about it. Mm. I think that's the nature of, of emergence when we actually let ourselves be drawn by the work that, that needs doing. Um, and I love the focus that you have on young people through, youth, through Roots and Shoots. And it strikes me that these days, some of the hardest work is making science and conservation accessible and inviting for adults. <laughs> young people seem to get it almost intuitively, but these topics have been so politicized. And I'm, I'm curious how you approach that part of the challenge of, of bringing adults along on the journey. Well, I've always tried to work from the top and the bottom, always. And, you know, it's no good just addressing the youth because it's going to be a while for some of them to get up there in decision-making um, positions, although some of them already are, but also because we have so little time left to change things before we get total collapse. It's really been important for me to talk to business leaders, politicians, and so on. So you work at the top, you work at the bottom. And I found amazingly that young people are playing such an important role because 
they are changing the way their parents think, the way their grandparents think. And the Roots and Cutes program began because I was approached by 12 high school students in Tanzania from eight schools. And they were concerned about, some of them about poaching in the national parks, some of them about illegal dynamite fishing, destroying the coral reefs, some of them about the bad treatment of stray dogs, some of them about the homeless children sniffing glue with nobody to care for them. And they wanted, they wanted me to help. What could, what could they do? So we got a big gathering together, them and their friends, and we did. We created this program, Roots Shoots, with the main message, every single one of us on this planet makes a difference every day. We get to choose what sort of difference we make. And because I learned about the interconnection of everything out in the rainforest, we decided that every group would choose itself, they would choose three projects Mm. to make the world better. One to help people, one to help animals, one to help the environment. And so that's how it began. 12 high school students now in 65 countries and growing and hundreds of thousands of young people, many of them now up in decision-making positions Mm. because, you know, it began in 1991. It's my greatest hope for the future. These young people are passionate. Mm. They're changing environments. They're changing their parents, changing their grandparents, changing the world. Mm. Yeah. Now I spend most of my days thinking about the climate crisis and how we address it, uh, the solutions we have and how we move forward in ways that are just and equitable to a livable future. And I think we need to be learning more from people who have spent most of their days in conservation and biodiversity. And I'm curious, what has your lifetime of conservation work taught you about solving the climate crisis? What lessons should the climate movement be learning? Well, I think there are three major things that have to change if we care about the future. One of them is our unsustainable lifestyles. Many people in the Western world, we have so much more than we need. And we're we're just not living in a in a way that is sustainable in the long run. And we're putting too much value on material things. But I could talk for hours about that, but I won't. So one of them is reducing our ecological footprint on the planet, the wealthy people. And then secondly, there's poverty. And poor people are going to destroy the environment, cut down the forest like they did at Gombe in order to survive. And so, We have to work with them as we have to help them to find a way of living that is more sustainable. And Mm -hmm. that is a really key, key component for everything we do. Helping the poor people live in such a way that they can rise out of poverty. And then of course, when they rise out of poverty, they want to introduce the very unsustainable ways that give us the lifestyle that we shouldn't be ascribing to, but do. So they want to as well. So there's something that we have to address. So often when you solve one problem, it creates another. And then finally, there's our growing human population. 
and the growing numbers of our livestock. And, you know, right now there's uh, 7.2 billion of us on the planet. And already in some areas, we're using up more natural resources than nature can replenish. And it's estimated by 2050, there'll be 10, close to 10 billion of us. So what's going to happen unless we can somehow address this, the way that we're living and create a new standard of living and interacting with the environment? Because otherwise, yeah. what's going to happen to our children? I don't know. Yeah. So these three things, the population, the unsustainable lifestyles that we live, and elevating people out of poverty who are destroying the environment because that's the only way they can live. Mm. I think these are great examples also of the fundamental shift in values that needs to happen, particularly in, in the global north and the ways in which we can multi-solve, right? That the fundamental human rights of access to education and healthcare have planetary ripple effects. Um, and, and we can think about these things um, in, in layered and, and interconnected ways. And the, the challenges that we face are, they're frankly huge. Um, we, we try to simplify these things in the way that we talk, but they are quite daunting. And where we are today, Jane, do you believe that we can build a life-giving future? And what gives you courage right now? Well, I believe that we can do it if, you know, we need to wake up. One of the big problems is apathy. One of the big problems is that so many people feel helpless and hopeless. There's nothing they can do about it. And you keep hearing, think globally, act locally, but it's the wrong way around. If you think globally, you get very depressed because we have made a mess. We've made a right mess around the planet. Uh, but if you think locally, well, there are things that I can do. I can look around me and see what's wrong here and I can get a group together, I can take action. That's what Roots and Shoots is about. And then when you take action, like you can clean up a river, or you can clear litter from the streets, or you can, you know, do whatever it takes. And you see it's made a difference. And then you realize that there are now Roots and Shoots groups all growing around the world, and they're all making a difference. So that gives you hope. Absolutely, yeah. it gives you hope. And without hope, I don't know what's going to happen. And you have to be always aware that when you solve one problem, you may very well create another. You've got to be prepared for that. You've got to think ahead and think, I solved this one, how am I going to solve that one? And there's so many amazing brains now around the world working on new solutions to this climate crisis and loss of biodiversity. And, you know, we do have an amazing brain. That's one of our attributes. <laughs> so we need to start using it in the right yeah. way. And if we can connect our heads and our hearts with the biggest possible we doing this work, I think that is absolutely where possibility lives. We'll be back with more after this message. 
Ready to take your travels to the next level? Alaska Airlines is committed to providing a higher standard of safety and cleanliness throughout your journey. From mask requirements and touch-free options to HEPA filters on board and everything in between. Plus, their award-winning loyalty program, Mileage Plan, makes it easy to earn and redeem miles wherever you go, including destinations worldwide, thanks to their One World Alliance membership. If you're ready to land a low fare, next-level care, and the best experience in the air, book now at alaskaair.com. We're going to welcome Jane back on for a few minutes of audience questions. So let's see what we've got coming in, Jane. Um, the first question is, what is something you think each of us can do today or tomorrow to make a difference? Well, the point is that every one of us should be working every day to make a difference. And you make a difference in how you interact with people, nature and animals. You make a big difference in what you buy uh, what you buy, whether it's for food or clothing or what have you, uh, how you interact with people. And, you know, we, we do, I, some people don't like to hear this, but we really do need to move away from a meat-based diet towards a plant-based diet. Not necessarily bang like that, but gradually, because there are two downsides to this desire we have for meat and more meat and more meat. One is the awful conditions of the factory farms. And two is the really damaging effect it has on our health. And three is the fact that to feed all these animals, we're destroying the environment. So yeah. moving towards a plant-based diet is something we all can do that really, really, really will make a difference. I couldn't agree more when I had my sort of environmental awakening when I was in high school. Um, I became a vegetarian and it's been more than two decades and I'm still going strong. So <laughs> I, I, I think it's, it's a really, it's also a really wonderful way to be mindful and kind of connected to our values and our place in, in living systems every time we eat. So I couldn't agree more. Jane, there's a question here, wondering if you have worked with Bill Gates and his connections regarding possibilities for mitigating the climate crisis. Um, actually, I haven't worked with Bill Gates per se, but we are with the Jane Goodall Institute working every day to mitigate the effects of the climate crisis. And yeah. it, it's from the individual level, what you, how you behave, what you eat, what you wear, um, but then our programs in Africa are basically all about mitigating climate change because it, it's something which which hangs over us like the sword of what sort of sort of who do I mean? Help me, sword of Damocles. Yes, sword of Damocles. Yes, yes. And if we don't change our ways, if we don't stop destroying the environment, then our number, our days as humans on this planet are numbered. And there's a, a growing appreciation, um, I think given this, this context um, and the evident failures of our 
sort of dominant um, economy and culture, an appreciation of traditional ecological knowledge in how we can readjust and rebalance our relationship with the natural world. The questioner asks if traditional ecological knowledge has informed your work, and if so, if you would comment on that role. I've worked a lot with Indigenous people, and I have huge respect. Take Native Americans, for example, and their their spiritual relationship with the natural world. And yes, they will kill an animal, but they they will give absolute respect to that animal. They will use every single part of it, like the pioneers used to. Nothing was wasted. What we do today is waste. We are a wasteful society. And the sections of the population, wealthy ones, and they buy clothes, oh, you can't wear that twice. You certainly can't wear it twice to the same sort of event. You've got to chuck it out and buy a new one. This is the kind of waste that is destroying the planet. We need to move towards a circular economy where everything gets recirculated back and we stop destroying the natural world. You know, that is yeah. just so very, very important. That we learn to yeah. live in harmony with nature and means our young people need to learn more about the effect that their footsteps have on the planet. Yeah. The value of enough seems to be such an important one for so for so many of us to to learn more deeply. Yeah. I watched the beautiful message that you recorded for Earth Day, and you described this beautiful waking dream um, that was both heart wrenching and and very moving. And you described the waves crying out to you about the plastic in the oceans. And the question is whether you think we will be able to come back from the harm that we've done to the world, to the oceans, by creating so much plastic? I'm absolutely sure we'll be able to come back if enough people really jump on the bandwagon. Because, you know, science continually is coming up with the most amazing innovative solutions. And there's one young man, I think he's Danish or something like that, and he's created these huge nets that go out and they capture all the floating plastic. There are these great islands of plastic out in the ocean. So if we have a method of gradually bringing and disposing safely of all this plastic, at the same time, the important thing is we've got to stop wasting, putting plastic waste out into the environment. And that's something which our Roots and Shoots program is very keenly aware of. And, you know, we're moving in that direction. More and more people are beginning to understand. But it's, it's mostly in the elite communities that they understand. Whereas the poorer communities are so busy trying to make a living, they, 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 don't, they don't have the energy to deal with this sort of thing. So that's why we've got to elevate people out of poverty. That's incredibly important. And at the same time, we have to reduce the standard of living. We have enough, but not too much. We mustn't go over the top. We have to elevate them, but at the same time, help them understand we made mistakes. We don't want you to make mistakes. It's not easy. <laughs>
One of the things that we saw last year was the impact that people staying put could have on, on global emissions. And this questioner says, Jane, I'm concerned that our obsession with traveling the world is damaging to the physical environment. As inspiring and educational as it is to interact with the world at large, I wonder if we are hurting the earth and using travel as a distraction when we should be living deeply in our own communities. What's your opinion? This person wonders. Well, it's very interesting because, you know, at first sight, it seems all this travel is destroying the, you know, the environment and putting out pollution into the atmosphere. But if you actually look at what's happened on the ground, you realize there is a role to play for responsible ecotourism. Because as tourism dropped, and it did in many countries because of the pandemic, that meant poaching increased, partly because the local people lost their jobs. They lost this whole infrastructure that had built up with hotels, getting jobs in hotels, being guides, all the rest of it. And, and countries bringing in foreign exchange because of all these people coming to look at nature. And mm. so it, you have to try and find a balance. I do not think it will ever work that there shouldn't be any ecotourism, at least not for the foreseeable future. But mm. it, needs, it, it shouldn't be this mass tourism. And we do need to try and balance the harm that's done by releasing these fumes into the atmosphere and the good that's done by helping local people get livelihoods by protecting the animals. Because if they lose those livelihoods, they're going to kill the animals with them because they're going to starve otherwise. So a balance, somehow we have to create a balance. And that isn't easy. It's kind of fine to see the answer, but how to get to that isn't always easy. I'm not a, you know, I'm not a seer. I need people to step in and they are stepping in. We can, yeah. we can make the world balance, I think. Yeah. When you started in this work and, and in particular in the field of primatology, there were almost no women um, sort of professionally doing this work. And a questioner asks, if you think that women bring something unique to, to the work and, and to this field. I think they do. And I think what, what really fascinates me is when women began to make their mark in say politics, the ones who succeeded, the ones who had real male characteristics they're the ones who got up there first but gradually that's changed gradually people are realizing that we need the two wings of the eagle like i was told by a native american tribe one wings male one wings female and only when the two are equal will we fly high and i love that that that's mm. and so we're beginning to see that the female characteristics of of you know compassion and nurturing which we've developed through the ages and ages and ages of our evolution because we have to raise families and look after families and we need to balance that with the male outgoing uh, tackling problems put the two together and then then you get the right answer i think so yeah. 
we just need we need both mm. sherry mitchell is an indigenous uh leader um here and and she talks about the role of the feminine as bringing heart-based wisdom the very thing you said earlier was missing um, and the sort of masculine energy. And of course, we all hold both of these as being the action oriented energies, but action in the absence of that anchoring of heart-based wisdom gets us into quite a bit of, of trouble. So I've, I've learned a lot from her about that, that particular piece of the balancing act um, that, that's needed. Yeah. Based on based on your your comments, Jane, it seems that wealth inequality is a substantial contributor to the loss of habitat, to climate disruption. Um, and how do you think we can address our current economic injustices and inequities to have planetary uh, benefits that that ripple out from from that rebalancing? Well, I think, you know, programs like Our Roots and Shoots is helping young people to move out of that lower level where they are disregarded, disrespected. And I remember talking to a group of Nepalese children who were being forced, you know, they were the untouchables. They were being forced to work in the salt mines. And I, I spoke to them. And some of them started to cry and i said why are they crying nobody's ever told them that their lives mattered before so we, we've got to work with these communities raise them out of poverty and until we do that we'll never have an equitable and just society nothing will ever work so we also have to reduce this standard of living that so many people in the in the western world think is their right and it's not the children's fault that's the way they've been raised that's why i think i was so lucky to grow up in the war because mm. you know a mouthful of food you had was important and you wouldn't dream of wasting food not the way that we waste yeah. food today and yeah. so it, we've got to get this balance we've got to reduce the gap between the haves and the have-nots we've got to help those who are disadvantaged to feel honored and respected and find ways of creating an economy that that somehow i mean i i'm not an economist i don't know how to do it but i know it can be done it must be done if we can't create more equality around the world the world will never work the way we want it to so we've got to do it and there's enough yeah. you know one of the things that differs us most from chimpanzees, our closest relatives share 98.6% of DNA with them. One of the things that differentiates us most is the explosive development of our intellect. So my goodness, mm. if we produced an intellect that can create a rocket to go up to Mars, from which a little robot crawls to take photos way up there, and we've, yeah. we've got mind that can understand the enormity of the universe and, and find that there's, there's other universes outside our universe. I mean, this is mind blowing. So we can do all that. So we do have the intellect to get things right on one little planet Earth. It's the only yeah. home we have. We're never going to 
be able to go to those other um, planetary systems way out there in space, not in any of our lifetimes anyway. So we've just got to make <laughs> things on this planet work. Yeah, it's the best planet there is. And I think, Jane, that's a beautiful place to, to end our conversation. Thank you so much for spending some time just in, in dialogue. It's been really wonderful. No, it's been great talking to you. And you know, in, in Tanzania, let me end up by saying where Roots and Shoots began, at the end of an event, I found that they were saying, together we can, meaning we can save the world. And I said, yes, I know we can, but will we? So now they say, together we can, together we will. And my great crowning moment of glory was in Davos two years ago. And there was a great group of uh, the good and the great, you know, there were politicians and all the rest of it. And at the end of it, I said, you know, can we just do that together? If you care, together we can, together we will. It was a very half-hearted reply. And I said, that's pathetic. Do you mean it or not? With one accord, they leapt up and said, together we can, together we will. And I thought, yes, that's what we need all around the world. Together we can, together we will do our bit. Wow. Each one of us do our bit to make this a better world for the future generations, right? Right. Jane, thank you so much for your indomitable spirit and thank all of you for joining us. that's it for this week's episode. Thanks to Dr. Goodall and Dr. Wilkinson for the talk. And thanks also to the folks in the audience who asked questions. If you'd like to be one of those audience members for a future CrossCut event, go to crosscut.com events. This episode of CrossCut Talks was engineered by Chi Lee. The live recording was engineered by Rusty Bacall and Victoria Ralph. And the event was produced by Jake Newman and Andrea O'Meara. Anne Krisnovich and Mo Cloud managed our audience engagement. If you'd like to subscribe to CrossCut Talks, you can do just that on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. For the latest political, environmental, and culture news from the Pacific Northwest, visit CrossCut.com. CrossCut Talks is a product of Cascade Public Media. I'm Mark Bumgarten. We'll be back soon with another conversation. <laughs>